name's Sarah. I'm going to be reading the Bible for us this morning, um, and we're reading from 1 John 4. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete in us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. I mentioned we are starting a new series today. And it's a series that's a little bit different to the last few we've worked through as we've worked through books of the Bible. And I want to warn you up front that that means that this talk is a bit different to what you might have become accustomed to. Uh, There'll be a bit more talking about the world and about life in it and a little less working through a passage like we did through Matthew and through Genesis and before that through Revelation and before that the wisdom literature. But we are coming off the back of a series looking at our origin story. I'm looking at Genesis 1 to 11 and how that is part of a story that God is the author of, a, a complex and integrated story that we saw demonstrated through this picture, which you might not be able to make out, but it's those arcs, those links between bits of the Bible. We see how the Bible is one integrated story that runs through from the beginning to Jesus and how we as God's people were made to live lives shaped by his story. Now we live in a world in the modern West that's moving away from that story and a world that is becoming more like Babylon, which was the kind of city of human heroes opposed to God we met in the pages of Genesis. Uh, A city or an empire where humans are the final authorities, the authors of our own stories. 
but at the moment in Babylon, there might be a growing sense among the movers and the shakers that the loss of a big story, the move to us all being the authors of our own story, the loss of a grand narrative is a problem for Babylon as well. And so the World Economic Forum wants you to discover their great narrative for a better future. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, so I'm going to put that up front, but I don't think the World Economic Forum is the only Tower of Babel around the UN's, not the Antichrist. Uh, in modern Babylon, we're actually all rulers, all like Nimrod, who we met in the story of Genesis, all little gods building our own kingdoms. And you're probably more likely to be impacted by an Instagram influencer or your family or your friends or, than you are by a bunch of faceless boffins in global think tanks at the World Economic Forum. But there is something about this organisation that wants to create this transnational heaven on earth, this better future without God that should remind us of Babylon, as we read about it in Genesis. They've put out this book, the World Economic Forum, drawing on political and thought leaders from around the world to, to tell this story about a better future. And they're doing this because they say stories, narratives are powerful. They're how we as people make meaning of the world, which is something we know because we've just been looking at that from the Bible. And like with Rome or with Babylon or with Egypt, there's lots of wisdom that we can draw from these thought leaders. We've just got to sift it out from a whole bunch of what in the Old Testament is idolatry, wrong worship, wrong ideas about God. So the World Economic Forum and its leaders, they think we need a new story because the modern world has become harder and harder to understand because it has become increasingly complex. I don't know if you feel like that's true. I feel like that's true. But they talk about how it's become this network of increasingly complex system, these growing global networks, connections that are multiplying at a staggering pace where everything is so integrated. And we've seen this in the pandemic and we've seen this in the floods and we've seen this with the Ukraine war. Everything is so integrated that if you pull one thread in one place across the world, it has impacts on us here. And so we're seeing this with $12 lettuces in the shops. We're seeing this with the price of fuel, with the Ukraine conflict. We're seeing this with empty supermarket shelves when supply chains are disrupted. Little changes in one part have massive impacts somewhere else because of the complexity of the world we live in. That's for groceries. Supply chains for electronics look a bit like this. I don't know if you can make this out, but every one of these lines is a connection between nodes in a network and all of these nodes are the companies or the individuals or the mining companies that provide resources that provide the dot in the middle is a Dell computer. Our technological products are a product of these increasingly complex webs. And if you pull one thread out, have you tried buying some new white goods or technology or a car or building a house during the pandemic? That's what happens. There's this picture of the modern world here, complex, lots of dots, lots of lines, people all over the world, companies all over the world, joined by these webs that we do not see, where you can pull a thread and everything changes. Life is complex, and the World Economic Forum says life is happening to us faster than ever. This complexity is accelerating because of our technology that creates a culture of immediacy. We're now connected to people across the globe in the click of a button, and this has created this culture of immediacy, and they say our dictatorship 
of urgency. Everything now feels not just important, but urgent, and it's coming to us faster than ever, and we're in this complex web that's getting more complex, and it's super fast, and I don't know if you feel like this every time you turn on your TV or open your smartphone, but these forces are at work, and they feel like they are pulling us apart, pulling your attention, demanding that you give your attention, your money, your thought, your energy to all of these complex things way beyond your control and having such an impact on your life, even when you go to the supermarket. And they say technology is part of that. This isn't a new idea. There's a French philosopher, we might meet him a few times this series. His name's Jacques Allal, and he wrote a book called The Technological Age. He wrote this in 1954. It's a book about how we modern people see technique and technologies, our ability to control things through doing the right things or making stuff that makes it easier as the solution to any problem we face as humans. I don't know if you can read this, it's a big quote, but he says, this idea has penetrated the very heart of us as humans. It changes our essence and it does this by changing the world we live in. Our technology adapts our environment and then we adapt to it. And so we now live in a universe that we were not created for. He says, we're made to walk, our bodies are about six k's an hour, but now machines will fly us around at a thousand. We're made to live in a rhythm, a natural rhythm with the world, but we obey a clock and we use electric lights and screens to stay up late and so we sleep less. So here's the kicker, he says, we're created with this unity, this integrity, this coherence, but all of these forces of the modern world are fragmenting us, they are disintegrating us pulling us to pieces. And he wrote this in 1954, before the internet. Now we're living in a digital world, a complex, accelerating digital world that's pushing us beyond our limits, beyond space and time, and being bodies who occupy space and time, leaving us trying to adapt to this accelerating digital world. And this will be one of the key ideas in this series. As we look at the world and look at what it's doing to us, our human limitations may actually be a good gift from God. A good gift from a God who is unlimited, who is complex, but who has made us creatures. And perhaps being human means embracing our limitations more, resisting the powers of the world that would pull us apart. There's another story that says, though, that this push, this adaptation, this technology is going to make us gods. Our our technology becomes a bit like Nimrod's bricks in the Tower of Babel. And so the author, Yuval Noah Harari, is one of the World Economic Forum's thought leaders. He's a writer, he's written a really popular book called Homo Sapiens and the sequel Homo Deus, which means divine humans. And on his website he says, history began when humans invented gods. That's what elevated us above the animals and will end when humans become gods. That's when human history will end, we'll move on to this new phase of godhood. Now, this is a guy who once presented a TED talk as a hologram. So here he is using technology to warp space and time. Now, he thinks technology will move us from beastliness, it's, it's already elevated us above the beastly level of survival struggles, and it's going to throw us towards being divine, upgrading us into gods, turning us into a new sort of humanity where we become immortal and we become the authors of our own destiny and we shape the world using our technology. So it's one vision for the future. It's one great narrative that you might choose to buy into. And he's not alone. Uh, Jeremy Rifkin's an advisor to the EU. 
He's another thought leader. Back in the 80s, he said this. He said, we humans are no longer guests in someone else's home. And he means God's here. We no longer have to conform to his cosmic rules. It's our creation now. We're in charge. We're freed from outside forces. God, and he's talking about God. And in case you think he's talking about some other power, not the Christian God, who's at the heart sometimes of the West, he says, we now are the architects of the universe, responsible to nothing outside ourselves, for we are the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a new prayer, isn't it? Do you recognise those words? Yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory from the Lord's Prayer. This is classic Babel. This is the elevation of ourselves to Godhood. It's part of a shift in the West away from the grand narrative, this shift away from the idea that God is God and we are not. In this shift, we are God's because there is no God anymore for these thinkers. There are no heavens. There's a different model of the universe operating to what's been operating through human history. See, the West's model of, the, of reality used to be something like this picture that we've seen through our work through Genesis and before that through Matthew's Gospel, the heavens and the earth where they both exist and God's present in both. And over time in the West that shifted to a belief that there's a separate secular realm where God has no interest and a sacred realm where God does stuff. So the church and the state, the separation of those things or the separation of secular work from God's work to now the shift has completed where there's only the secular. As far as these guys are concerned, we're not in a cosmos that's shot through with meaning and supernatural power. We're in a universe, us and our technology in this material world. There's a guy who's written a lot about this. His name's Charles Taylor. He might come up a bit too during this series. He calls this shift from cosmos to universe disenchantment. It's a good word. We've lost this sense of the supernatural order of things. We've lost the idea that God is there and at work in every moment, in every place, that he is not limited by space and time. We've moved from a cosmos to a universe by this process of disenchantment. And he says, often the way we account for this, the way we talk about that move is we tell ourselves what he calls subtraction stories. The story of how we've got here involves getting rid of, shedding, bad, superstitious stuff as we become enlightened. And so when you think about the stories that people tell to describe how we got from a world where most people believed in supernatural things to the world we live in, often it's the science came along and suddenly we understand things and we don't need God anymore and look at us with our technology and look where we're going. That's the great narrative. It's a subtraction story. And he says it's not just subtraction stories that have made this change for us. It would be a mistake to think that way and it would be a mistake to respond as though all it is is a story. He says, actually, we've changed things. We've, we've lost some stuff, but we've also changed the world we live in and the stories we tell are part of how we adapt to that new world. So we've added new technology and new ideas and new practices. And so in the West, we've had global migration. We've had the Reformation that created the possibility of multiple religious stories in one community, Protestants and Catholics. We've shifted because now there are lots of great stories that you might choose to believe, lots of big stories about life in the world, and actually having choice is part of what's changed. And this is all part of what's behind the decline of Christianity in Australia. You might have seen the latest census results. This is a, a kind of infographic-style version of them. If, you were, if there are 100 dots 
this many would be Christians up there, this many would be not religious, this many would be, they haven't really described what they think, and this is other religions. So once that was a whole lot bigger, and that was almost non-existent, and so was that, and so was that. But something has changed. And Stan Grant wrote about this decline for the ABC, for their religion and ethics section. He wrote this really great article, I think, that talks about what's going on. And he says, this phenomenon that we're observing in Australia, it's actually only happening in the West. People are actually becoming more religious in places where Western values aren't part of the story, or even places where they're actively resisting Western values. Somehow Western values have become anti-God. He says, in the West, we're cutting ourselves off from history and from tradition, and this isn't always bad. Stan Grant's an Indigenous man, and he says, particularly, he notices, it's not bad that some traditions are gone for people who aren't white or for people who aren't male. There are traditions that have been bad that we are shedding. But what it does mean is that the modern West is breaking up with God. So if originally the West is a product of Christianity, Christendom, now the modern West is a breakup story, a leaving God behind, a pursuing of Godhood for ourselves, where we become sovereign, where liberalism, the kind of system that underpins our government and our market, it prizes the individual above all. Ours is the kingdom. We become our own authorities. We become the authors. You know, it's the link between author and authority. We become the authors of our own lives. We're free to imagine ourselves, to reimagine ourselves, reinvent ourselves, disconnected, untethered from the past, from family or from faith, from the things that have given meaning. We're now free. And that sort of liberation can have a fundamental goodness to it, can't it? We actually want to be free to choose to locate ourselves in a better story, in a story that has a better future. And there are people here in this room who've come from other faith traditions or who've escaped abusive family situations or have escaped abusive church traditions or who are enjoying the benefits of a Western world where women and sexual minorities and non-white people have increasing dignity. And this is good liberation. It's often liberation that's come out of something true and good about Christianity as well. The West has been so profoundly shaped by Christian intuitions. But the trick is that sometimes good liberation just leads us to other bad authorities, other bad authors, and sometimes that author is us. And so being human, figuring out how to live in this disintegrating world, this world that's going to pull us apart, is about figuring out whose story you are living in who the author or authority of your life is, and whether it's a great narrative that's going somewhere good. So on that level, the World Economic Forum's right. We have to ask if these authorities that we're turning to are freeing us from bad authority or enslaving us under their own. And that's true even of ourselves. We have to ask this question whether it's the great narrative from the World Economic Forum or the promise offered by technology companies, or our entertainment, the stories we bombard ourselves with, our advertisers, our Instagram influencers, everybody is telling a story. Everybody is inviting you to find a new authority. We need to ask ourselves too, if the God the West is breaking up with 
is actually the God we meet in Jesus. It's the God the West is departing from as we pursue our own autonomy is God as we meet him in the Bible. Because the thing about the West is it was first shaped by believing God and it's people shaped by the West who are breaking up with God. People who think they know the God they're rejecting. And any move away from God in the West will be shaped in part by Christian ideas, a Christian moral framework, Christian intuitions. And it'll be either a sense that God is actually bad, that he's somehow unloving, that he's not good and his story is not good, or it will be the result of a bad view of God. And these are what you might call Christian heresies often. And Christian heresies through history have often been a failure to hold two ideas in tension, two truths in tension. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, the Catholic writer from England, writing in the early 20th century, he says this cool thing about orthodoxy being about keeping Christianity's furious opposites, keeping them both and keeping them both furious. And heresy is what happens when we fail to do this. When we pick one opposite, not the other. When we emphasise one pole and dismiss or de-emphasise the other. Christianity is actually full of these tensions. Jesus is fully God and fully man. The Bible is fully God's word and fully human. God is three and one. And so the shift in the West from the cosmos to the universe started with a warped view of God. You can trace it back to the idea that the universe is like a watch. That the universe is like a machine that's ordered perfectly, that we can search for God then through a telescope or through our science, through our ability to measure and observe. But then once we understand how things happen, that does away with the need for God to be involved in the processes. We didn't hold these two truths in tension that God works through natural processes. The supernatural and the natural were overlapping. The same obsession with natural processes and describing them got applied to the Bible. It became not God's word, but human words pasted together through evolving human processes. Or if you're holding the two tensions that it's God's word and human, that doesn't become a massive problem. People started looking for the historical human Jesus behind all the spiritual stuff in the Gospels and started rejecting the idea that he's God come in the flesh, the incarnation. Even the Trinity became this unimportant thing that was just made up philosophy stuff, human construction, and we had to get to somehow the real essence of a God who we could observe with our eyes. And often these approaches, these actions, were a reaction to the church exclusively holding the other opposite. Like if the church sees the gospel just as spiritual, with no bearing on life in the world, or the Bible is only divine, denying the humanity of the authors in their situation, or embedded in the community of God's people, embedded in history. And so we Christians in the West have failed to hold tensions and hold them furiously, And this has been true, too, of how we think and speak about God, and that's been part of the process that's driven the breakup. Truly being human, true knowledge of ourselves starts with knowing God. And so this is our project, this series, and really in everything we do as a church, not just in our sermons, not just in our time together, uh, in our songs, when we say the creed, when we pray, when we read the Bible, when we share communion, when we eat lunch, When we go out into God's world, 
Our task as God's people is to want to know more of God and have that shape us as we live and love. See, how can we bear the image of God, which we saw in our story, is what we're made to do without knowing what God is like? How can we live in an integrated, coherent way without knowing the author of life, especially if God is the one who actually has authority over us, the one we belong to? Which is Jesus' point about the image of God in that test with the coin, where they come to him and they want to test his authority against Caesar's authority. And they come to him with this coin, and they say, do we give this to Caesar? And he says, give to Caesar what has his image on it, but give to God's what is God's. See, the heart of this idea of being human, being made in God's image, is that we actually belong to God. We're meant to be in relationship with God in order to reflect him in the world. And so the big idea for this morning, the the take-home that will maybe shape the rest of the series is that being human means furiously holding these two truths together. We are made to be like God. We are made in His image. That's what being a human is. But we are not God. We are made with limits and He is not limited. And it means holding too these two truths about the triune God as we think about what it means to be human. God is both one God and three persons. God is both a community working in perfect harmony, one God, and three persons who don't lose their personhood. And we hold these truths furiously. So this is a profound idea we proclaim. You might not be conscious of this. You might not have kind of moved beyond just repeating to processing. But whenever we say the creed together, we're teaching ourselves these truths. God the Father is God. Jesus the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And these truths are at the heart of our faith, and actually holding them is at the heart of being truly human, because we get swept up into this life. To believe this, to know God, means knowing that the God who is the author, the authority over our lives, is the God who is love. So this statement, it comes up a couple of times in the passage Sarah read, this statement is itself Trinitarian. I don't know if you've thought about it that way. You might just want to apply it straight to yourself, but it's true. God is love and he loves you. But God cannot be love, at least not eternally, if God is alone. How can God be love without someone or something to love? If God is just a single self, then who does he love before he's created? How can we say that this is a a characteristic of God? Part of what's caught up in this passage is the idea that the love we experience from God is caught up, is a product of the dynamic life of God, the love of God that overflows into the world. This is even caught up in the names of God as we speak about God, as we speak about the persons of the Trinity. So I think John has this passage from Jesus in mind as he writes this letter, this passage from his gospel about Jesus, where Jesus is praying to his Father. Jesus calls God the Father, and that only makes sense if God has eternally been the Father, if we can call God Father this way, if He's eternally been loving the Son the way Jesus speaks about Him. Jesus says He's been loving Him from the beginning, from before the creation of the world. God has been a Father, and Jesus has been the Son, and they have been bound together in love. And the Spirit's part of that binding, that movement of love between the persons of God. 
if there was a time that the son did not exist and there was a time that the father was not a father and that he was not loving the son, he was not love. Now, a lot of what we're going to do this series is going to start abstract and you might hate that and I get it. So I want to suggest if you want something concrete to think about and to hang on to, uh, Michael Reeves is an author who's got these two little books about God that are a beautiful starting point for getting our heads, not just our heads, but our hearts around this stuff. And this one's called Delighting the Trinity. And in it, he makes these uh, summary statements about how the message of John works and how these words from Jesus work. And he says, In God, in this statement that God is love, we meet a God who is not lonely, but who's been loving for all eternity as the Father has loved the Son in the Spirit. So the problem is if we make ourselves gods and we're not part of a community, when we talk about us being love, if you're by yourself, if you exist discreetly as this unit, to call yourself love, it's always going to have a selfish bent to it. Because if you're alone and you're still love, it manifests itself in self-love. But for God, God's not lonely. He has eternally been love because he has eternally been triune, Father, Son and Spirit. And Reeves lands with this quote from a Russian theologian, a guy named Vladimir Losky, who was looking at kind of the pushing of God to the margins in his country of Russia and how that started with this natural process and it started with this idea that you didn't need the Trinity. He says, looking at the death surrounding him, if we reject the Trinity as the sole ground of all reality and all thought, we're committed to a road that leads nowhere. We end in despair, in folly, in the disintegration of our being." in spiritual death. Those are strong words, aren't they? But when you picture life in the modern world, if it's true that it is disintegrating, if it is pulling us apart, bombarding us, pulling us in so many directions, leaving us totally unsure of ourselves, totally unsure how to be human, well, maybe he's onto something. And maybe the root of that disintegration is actually the breakup with God, the God who is love. What if it's God's life and his love that is meant to integrate us, that's meant to hold us together as humans? So Jesus' prayer in John's gospel is that we might be one, that we might be one with each other and with God, just as the Father and Son are one, just as they are bound together in love, that we might be swept up in the love of the Father for the Son and the Son might be in us, that we might have this communion, this union, this love that is at work in God as we come to know God. Now this communion, it doesn't make us gods. We don't become the authority over heavens and earth. We remain creatures and God remains the creator. But Jesus prays that our lives and our love as individuals and in communion, in community, will reflect the life and love of God. And that's what we're made for. Part of being made human, male and female, as God's image, is that God's life and love is represented not just by us as individuals, but by individuals in community, living and loving, that love overflowing and creating life, living and loving as limited creatures, embodied, mortal, placed in time and space, but in relationship with the eternal source of life and love. And so when John says God is love, it's not an abstract idea. It's concrete for him. He wants us to love in ways shaped by our experience of God's love. So much of what we've just read from 1 John is 
a command to love each other, to actually put this into action. And we do this because we're overwhelmed by the way that we are children of God who've been swept up in the life and love of the Trinity in a way that then teaches us how to be human, how to reflect God's life and love in our lives. See, our love within this community of God's people is meant to be overflowing from God's love for us. It's this cascading thing, life-giving thing. It's meant to overflow from the love we see within God, within the Trinity, in creation, in the making of the heavens and earth, where we see the triune God, the Father, Word and breath, as they happen in Genesis 1, Father, Son and Spirit, delighting in creating, each playing their part together in this perfect cooperative harmony and even in creating us humans and then this love overflows again in recreation, in the Word, the Son becoming flesh, in the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the pouring out of God's Spirit to unite us into God's life. That's an act of love from God. And to deny this, to deny the incarnation, John says, is basically to deny that God is love. It is to be an antichrist. See, these experiences of God, they show us what love is. In our world, our material world, our new imaginations after the breakup, we've turned love into a God. Without the thing that wants to find love in the picture for us, we will just say love is love and it's the chief good as though that makes sense, but God is love. God defines love, and love is godliness. It's an expression of what God is like. God shows us what love is. This is how we know what love is. God the Son became human and laid down his life for us, bridging the gap between us and God. To deny that, it's a rejection of the idea that God's love and it, God is love, and it leaves us not knowing God, and so not knowing love, because Jesus is how we know both. That God sent his one and only Son into the world, this is love. That he loved us and sent his Son so that we might live through him and as an atoning sacrifice for sins. In another one of his great little books, it's called Rejoicing in Christ, uh, Michael Reeves gives this really beautiful picture that I think helps sum it up. We might have all different pictures of God in our imagination. We might have dreams, dark and frightening images of a God who is all-powerful and just wants to destroy us. But actually, there is no God in heaven who is not like the Son. No Father who does not look like Jesus, the image of God. No Father who is not lovingly sending His Son to give you life. And so here's another furious pair of truths to hold together. Jesus shows us what God is like. He reveals God to us. And Jesus also shows us what being human is meant to be like without collapsing the difference between creator and creature. He teaches us to be human because he teaches us to love. God's act of love is an act of giving life, giving himself. He shows us what love is because he bridges the gap between us and God. And so we know what love looks like when we contemplate this action from God, the self-giving of God in the incarnation, in the cross, in the resurrection, when we contemplate that in its fullness, that the Son became flesh, became human, not just for that period of time, but for the rest of eternity. 
that he took on flesh, that he died on a cross, that he was raised from the dead, and he and the Father have poured out the Spirit to unite us into the oneness of God. When we contemplate that truth, we start to understand what love looks like, this gift of love. So Jesus shows his love for God and for us in this story, in his sacrifice, and he's giving himself to God as the author of life in order that we might live, that we might become images of God as individuals and in communion with each other and with God. In the cross, we see what love from human to human looks like too. Jesus becomes our example. Did you catch that in the reading as Sarah read? John says, in this world, we are like Jesus. In this world, we are to love each other the way God has loved us, the God who took the initiative and sacrificially gave himself before we were part of his family. We should love others in this way too, generously, prodigally, wastefully, hospitably, sacrificially, giving of ourselves, creating a community of people who are one, but who are distinct individuals who overflow with love. So you want to know what it looks like to bear the image of God, to do what we were made to do as humans? Well, look at Jesus and love like him. In this world, we are like Jesus. This is what being human should be, but we have to hold these furious opposites. Remember that we are not God, and so our love that looks like the love of Jesus will have human limits. So we can run into big problems when we try to map the life of God onto the life of our community. If we try to make ourselves gods rather than humans. See, we're brought into the Trinitarian life and love of God, but we don't become God. We don't become the Father. We're not the Spirit. We have a body. We can, if we get this wrong, end up trying to live without limits, trying to extend ourselves beyond what God has made us to be, trying to be infinite when we are finite, trying to be God or to use our tools, our technology to become God-like when we are not. We can stop sleeping. We can dissolve healthy boundaries between ourselves and others in the name of love. We can do all sorts of things where we forget our humanity. We can stop self-care. We can be pulled by technology to care for things a world away where we can't offer the embodied love God demonstrates in the incarnation. We can be pulled apart not just by the world, but by thinking that we are God, not recognising our limits. We can be disintegrated by that just as much. Our limits are good and God-given. We don't need to learn to be gods from God. We need to learn to be human from Jesus. And we are like Jesus, but we're not Jesus. You are not the Messiah. You are not crucified for people, nor can you save people from their sin or the brokenness they are experiencing. You are not the author of the lives of others. You are not even the author of your own life. You do not have to self-justify because Jesus' love for the Father and his coming in the flesh and his birth and his death and his resurrection justifies you. And this is liberating. We're not the spirit that conforms anybody to the life and pattern of God or unites people under our own power, but we do have the Spirit working in us to unite us in the life of God. 
See, we live in a world created by the triune God, a world that's sustained by his love through his powerful world. It's being reconciled by him as God authors its story. And you do not have to be in control. You do not have to lift yourself up to become God's. You do not need to use technology to become immortal. His is the kingdom, the power and the glory. And our world keeps telling us different. It keeps telling us that you need to save you, that you need to take responsibility, you need to self-justify, you need to fix yourself, and that is not freedom. That is not life, it is death. Life is found in the freedom that God gives us, the freedom of being swept up in a life of sacrificial, self-giving love for others. See, we cannot solve the complex issues in our complex world. At most, we are a little dot in a very complex web. And if we aren't there one day, something else will happen over here, but that's okay. We cannot solve the problems of the modern world. And if you try, even if you try to solve them for yourself, you will be torn apart. And this world is going to get faster and more complex as more stories are told and more technology comes along and we get pulled into more and more places faster and faster, given more visions for how to be human, and this complexity will tear you to pieces if you try to hold things together under your own power, or if you are not standing somewhere solid when it's happening. Basically, you have to choose a complex system to plug into. You can choose the world, or you can choose the complex and dynamic system that is love, the Trinity, the God who we can't comprehend, never fully, but who gives you your personhood. Tish Warren's a priest uh, in America in the um, Anglican Church over there. She's an author who writes some great stuff about how to be human. And here's an answer that I think she's given that's quite helpful for rejecting the complexity and the noisy pace of the world, for embracing our limits and drawing near to the triune God. It's this practice of contemplative silence and prayer. Have you ever tried that? Silence is hard in this world. We're going to try some in a minute. But this is a practice that teaches us the limits of our words and actions, that that stops us jumping to speak, that stops us buying into the idea that to be silent is to participate in a complex world and actually is an opportunity to draw near to God and trust that He is in control. And so silence and contemplation, when we contemplate the love and the life of God, and as we see it revealed in Jesus, this is where we learn to slow down, to stop being pulled apart, and to move not at the pace of the world that is disintegrating us, but at the mysterious pace of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to invite you to sit for a while. This silence, this kind of silent reflection, maybe it's something we could build into the rhythms of our life as a church, but also our lives as individuals as an act of resistance the world, an act of trying to know God, to reposition ourselves, not as the author of the story, not as the author of our own lives, not as the people who need to save ourselves or the people around us, but as creatures. So I want to leave you this idea that we are only truly human when we are living and loving in communion with God and with each other. And I'm going to invite you to spend a few minutes, it's going to be really hard, I'm just warning you now that silence and stillness doesn't feel natural, but it is. 
leave you for a, few, for a few minutes with some words from 1 John 4 on the screen to contemplate and some quotes from Michael Reeves' book before we come together to celebrate communion that we've been drawn into the life and love of God. So will you spend some time praying to the God who is love? Maybe you'll need to confess some things that you've been trying to break up with Him, that you've been running from Him. Maybe you need to just adore God, get swept up in His goodness to you in Jesus. But will you spend some time doing that now?